The way that I think about Twitter is, and social media more broadly, is this is an incredibly powerful tool, but the incentives built into the systems are somewhat misaligned with my incentives. And so I need to remind myself that I need to act in a way that aligns with my incentives, not in the way that the the system is designed to get me to act. Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. You're back. We're back. Let's do this thing. Today, we have an interview that I hope will appeal to both entrepreneurs seeking insight on how to make content and social media work for them, and those looking for both strategies and business opportunities in the property investment space. My name is Moses Kagan, and I am a co-founder and one of the partners at Adaptive Realty, which is a boutique real estate private equity firm based in Los Angeles with about $200 million in asset center management and uh, laser focused on buying, renovating, and managing smaller apartment buildings. It was actually a former guest, Sweaty Startup's Nick Huber, who mentioned how influential Moses had been in changing the whole way he thought about Twitter and content marketing in general. And look, we saw it worked, so we're going to the source. So we're going to start there and then move on to Moses's property insights in the second half of the show. So just a bit of context about Moses. His background is actually in investment banking via Princeton and the London School of Economics. He got into property sort of by chance, as you'll hear. And as mentioned, he's incredibly active on Twitter and has a great blog over at kagansblog.com, which I very much encourage you to check out. The person who taught me about this was Seth Godin. He wrote a book called Permission Marketing that I read must have been like, I don't know, 14 years ago or something that really opened my eyes to this. The examples that he uses are kind of out of date, but like the insight is as relevant today as it it ever was. I think a lot of modern media misses the power of tiny little niches. Obviously, you have consumer media, which is like, you know, MTV or CBS or, you know, gigantic audiences full of not particularly, you know, they're consumers, people who buy beer and Fords and whatever. Those are not particularly valuable (laughs) customers. Then on the business media side, and we used to work with these kind of companies when I was in banking, like there were all these like traditional sort of business-to-business publications, advertising age, marketing week, pest control monthly or whatever. There's a million of these like very boring business-to-business publications. The reason they work is even though the audience is much smaller than the mass market consumer media, because they're so niche-focused, they're valuable. Like advertisers want to reach all the pest control companies. So you advertise in you know, pest control monthly and you, you can reach all of them. What content marketing allows you to do with social media blogs and then Twitter and Instagram and all that stuff, what it allows you to do as a creator is to define a very narrow niche, potentially a niche that's so narrow that it even wouldn't support a traditional B2B magazine, like a tiny, tiny niche. 
your audience numbers are going to be small. I think at the peak, I had like 5,000 people a month reading my blog. No normal marketer looks at that audience and is like, sees anything. They're just like, this is ridiculous. Okay. It's tiny. But if it turns out that if you write a extraordinarily detailed blog about the nuts and bolts of buying and renovating apartment buildings in Los Angeles, yes, the audience for that is going to be small. But those people are highly likely to hire you as a broker to help them buy and sell buildings or hire you to manage their buildings or want to invest in your deals. It's an extraordinarily specific audience that happens to, generally speaking, be, have a lot of capital and be very interested and be very likely to transact with someone who they regard as an expert. The insight is that by speaking very specifically about a topic that is of interest to people who have means, you can create for yourself an enormously powerful audience, even though that audience is small. Adaptive Realty, we, we own $200 million worth of real estate. The total number of people who have invested in an Adaptive Realty deal to build that $200 million portfolio, the total number of people is like 100. Keith Wasserman, who runs Gelt, which is like, I'd love to be Gelt. They have, I think they have like about a billion and a half under management right now. I think he's got like 400 investors or something, 500 investors. There's so much power in, in these very small, specific niches. Who cares about how, like, I actually, I mean, I, I watch my Twitter following because it's like, there's some ego involved, but like, the truth is that of the 45,000 people who follow me, I'm always happy to talk to people. Like, it's cool. I love talking about real estate, like educating people, but only 1% of those people or whatever are ever going to have any meaningful, like make a meaningful difference to my career from a financial perspective. So Twitter sort of like acts as like a funnel where I can talk to a lot of people and then a very small number of those end up being investors, but that's enough because of the power of niches. Somehow this fundamental insight occurs to people, but somehow they bobble it in the writing of the blogs. Maybe they try to mimic what they've seen in mass media rather than when you were describing like this very specific demonstration of your expertise. It's incredibly powerful. Yes, I think that's right. But I think one of the gigantic mistakes that people make on Twitter is that they become so focused on engagement metrics and followers, how many likes they get, how many retweets they get, how many followers they have. They engage in behaviors that are designed to maximize those engagement numbers and the follower count. And the way you get lots of retweets and likes and whatever else is often by writing things that are very superficial, Yes, right? Because more people can, can engage with something that's like pretty superficial. They engage in controversy. They say like intentionally provocative things and get in fights with people because the algorithm likes that. So that gets you distribution, right? But like if you're trying to build an audience for a serious purpose and you're trying to show people that you're an expert and attract serious human beings, those are horrible mistakes. Like no one who's smart wants to read like surface superficial bullshit and they definitely don't want to read you getting in like stupid arguments with people. Yeah, you'll get a lot of followers, but they'll think that you're a moron. In any case, the way that I think about Twitter is, and social media more broadly, is 
this is an incredibly powerful tool, but the incentives built into the systems are somewhat misaligned with my incentives. And so I need to remind myself that I need to act in a way that aligns with my incentives, not in the way that the the system is designed to get me to act. I beat this drum all the time because I've experienced it time and time again as a content marketer. And just one small glimpse into it is if I just think of like all my wealthiest friends, like they're always looking for high quality information on the web. Like they are digging everywhere and they don't like to leave trails of where they've been. So they don't like to retweet. They don't like to like, they don't like to be on the radar typically. I've had like multi-million dollar checks written by people who are gray circles. Yes. Like on Twitter. In other words, they don't have a picture. Their name is like, you know, Ben82579. And they've, you know, they have two followers who follow them by accident. And they've like never tweeted ever once. It's always interesting. And whenever I have like a spare second and I see some one of those like gray circles follow me, I click on who they're following. And I can tell from who they're following often how serious they are. Oh, yeah. You can tell that they're using Twitter exclusively as a means of becoming educated. I mean, I'm sad to say, like, I guess I'm maybe like a judgmental person or whatever, but like, I see this, they're following this person, this person, this person. And it's like, and it allows me to triangulate and it's like, okay, that person is highly likely to be a serious human being, someone who is, you know, a partner in a private equity firm or runs his own hedge fund or whatever. And honestly, like, those are the kind of people who, who invest in our deals. We're a bunch of entrepreneurs listening to this show. Maybe thinking about ways we could help folks like you, people in the real estate niche. If we're not capital partners, we can't write checks. How might we get involved in this space in 2021? One key thing to understand about real estate is that it's both probably the biggest market in the world. Like if you think about the total value of all the real estate, like just the United States, it's trillions. Unlike almost every other major market, it is enormously fragmented. There is no Nike of real estate. There are 30 million apartments in the United States. The largest owner of apartments owns a few hundred thousand. Even the biggest firms are minnows. And we can talk about why that is, but because there's so much market fragmentation, there's an enormous number of owners and managers of real estate. There's like a million of these little management companies floating. I mean, we're tiny. We manage 100 buildings, manage like 750 apartments. Grand scheme of things, that's tiny. And that's in every city in the country, there are these thousands of firms just like mine. None of those firms know what they're doing vis-a-vis marketing. They're focused on real estate. They're not focused on learning about modern marketing methods. Marketing for most of those firms is like putting a sign up when they own a building or like when they've got a building for sale or whatever. Maybe they have a website now. Some of them don't even have, like they tell you their email address and it's like, you know, management at gmail.com, right? That's, I'm just trying to give you a sense of like, oh, the overall sophistication of many of the market participants. There are opportunities all over the place to help those owners and firms sort of like join the 21st century with respect to marketing and and, and, and technology more broadly in their uh, operations. You don't need to like take them to, you know, Google level. You don't need to be that sophisticated. All you need to do is help them get to like normal 21st century small business levels. And that's already super helpful to them. 
So marketing agency mar- and marketing products like funnels and totally. newsletters and even social media, Twitter stuff. Basic blo- marketing, blocking and tackling. And then the other thing to say is like, again, from an operational perspective, there's a lot of change right now in the technology that's available in particular to management companies. There are all kinds of systems available to help you do various things like accounting and leasing and management and all that stuff. There's Appfolio and Yardi and RealPage. There's a bunch of these companies and there are a bunch of little side ones that are doing other stuff around them. Your average 30-year-old property management company has no idea which of those they should use. And God help you try to install a system like that in a company that's been around for 30 years and they've got all their stuff in filing cabinets. There is another, separately from the marketing piece, there's a whole opportunity around helping firms select which of the different technology services and systems they should use and how to implement them within their own business and their own business practices. Okay? Love it. Can I give you one more? Yes. Okay. (laughs) We are greedy for business ideas. Let me start out by saying property management in particular is a very difficult business. No one like gets up in the morning and calls you and is like, you know what? My apartment is great today. No. Yeah. They call you and they're like, fuck you guys. My toilet's broken. Like, you know what I mean? It's like, it's not a fun business. You know, it's a necessary business, but it's not a fun business. It's really hard to find in most of the United States, high quality people who are okay getting yelled at by tenants. And so increasingly, management companies are going to be hiring offshore. The economics of the business are just not good enough to support paying the kind of wages in a lot of places that are necessary to get someone good to take that phone call from the tenant. And so there is absolutely room for consultants to help these companies figure out how to offshore. Which country should I go to? What communication system? How do I handle payroll? And what are the legal implications? And all of that stuff. Or actually, you could set up a business like, I don't know, acting as an outsourced call center or whatever. There's a whole world of that. That's going to be over the next 10 or 20 years. That's going to be an enormous change that's going to happen in the domestic property management business. And there's just all kinds of opportunities for people to make money helping firms do that. I'm living in the States for the first time in many, many years in a large managed complex, and I can see the amount of salaries walking around and, and like the halfway it's online right now. And why am I complaining to them instead of complaining? So I get where you're going with this. We're a very bookish audience here too. And I was impressed reading your suggested reading list. I hope the readers or listeners will go over your blog. Not a lot of books that I've read before. And I'm wondering, you have some biography there. You have a lot of real estate books. If you could maybe take us into one book that is a little bit of a curveball for our listenership that has taught you or brought you insights into business. So there's a book called Risk Game. Okay, Risk Game. So Francis Greenberger is an enormously successful real estate developer. He also owns among the most successful literary agencies in the United States. This guy is just a crazily successful, interesting polymath. Started working at his parents' literary agency when he was like 14 and basically running the place. And then he got into real estate and made himself a billionaire. And 
the book is a, it's a memoir. It's about his career and what he's learned. And without getting too into the weeds, the concept that really resonated with me, and I think we were already doing this, but I had never put a word, a name to it. And I think it's also relevant across every kind of asset and actually probably every kind of business as well, is this concept of a differentiated lens. Greenberger made most of his money buying these fucked up old apartment buildings in New York City in the 70s and co-op converting them. So he figured out that you could, instead of keeping them as rentals, you could sell the apartments effectively like condos to individual owners. So at that time in history, the apartment buildings were super cheap. New York was really screwed up in the 70s. So it was really cheap to buy buildings. And yet people really wanted to own apartments. And so there was this incredible arbitrage where like he could buy cheap buildings and just immediately turn around and sell the apartments off to the individuals and make a fortune. And what that did for a very long time before other people caught on to what he was doing is it gave him a differentiated lens. A shitty apartment building would come up on the market in New York. And he and all of his competitors would see the same deal, okay, same building. Because Greenberger was going to do something different with the building than all of his competitors, they were going to run it as rentals. So they're evaluating it like rentals. And all of them are like crabs in a bucket, you know, squeezing out little, right? Okay. And he's like, I'm not running this as rentals. I'm going to sell it as condos. So the building is worth way more to me than it is to all the crabs in the bucket. He had a differentiated lens. He was looking at the same asset in a different way that caused that asset to be considerably more valuable to him than it was to anyone else. And the power of a differentiated lens in business, and and particularly in, in private equity, and especially in real estate private equity, is You can just look, if you have a real true differentiated lens, you can see the deals that everyone else is seeing and you still win the deals and you still produce good returns because you're doing something different, because you have a differentiated lens. Let me take a moment to talk about our recruiting services at Dynamite Jobs. If you're thinking about hiring, our team can help you be more strategic. If you're in the middle of a time-consuming candidate campaign, we can take it off your plate. And if your HR team is having difficulty delivering the right team members, we can be their support. See strategy, positioning, promotion, filtering, interviewing, and assessing, they are all a tremendous amount of very important work, even for organizations with seasoned HR teams. But our expert team does it every day, all day. And it's not just our expertise you'll be accessing. We run one of the largest remote job boards and databases of qualified candidates on the web. Why not work directly with a team who hires hundreds of A players annually for businesses just like yours? So if you run a remote first company, we can help you grow faster and smarter. And the best part is we charge just one simple flat fee for every hire. And with Dynamite Jobs Recruiting, your results are guaranteed. To learn more about how we can help you grow, head on over to dynamitejobs.com and click on the Hire With Us link. All right, so coming up is sort of the second chapter of this interview with Moses Kagan, where we get a bit of his backstory and where he dives in some detail into the strategies and frankly, mathematical principles he's used to drive success at Adaptive Realty. So I'm in London. I graduated London School of Economics, get this job in banking, do a couple of years there. 
I was involved in a deal that brought in a big chunk of our firm's revenue one year. And I basically went and I was like, look, you guys got to give me a really big bonus. And they were like, we don't do that because you're junior and we're not going to break our whole salary structure for some junior guy. And I was like, I'm going to leave if you don't. And they were like, we're not bluffing. Like, we can't give you the bonus that you're asking for. And I said, I'm not bluffing either. And then they called my bluff. And so then I felt like I had to quit. So I quit banking, but I knew I wanted to do something entrepreneurial. And I also knew that my network was all back in the States. Came back here in 2007 in September, started a tiny little crappy SaaS business. <laughs> we were ahead of our time. It was actually a good... We've all had a crappy SaaS business. What, what did you all do? Oh, dude. Well, <laughs> let me give you some advice. Do not attempt to create a recurring revenue business that is based on actors' credit cards not being declined. We were providing technology services to actors and casting directors and like charging the actors, basically. We had this recurring revenue model, which was like a really good idea. And I think we were actually early in thinking about that. We, were, we had the right ideas. But the problem is that actors' credit cards would, were getting declined at like 30% a month or something. <laughs> so you, how do you have a recurring revenue business when like you, you instantly have 30% churn? I mean, it's like a disaster. In the course of that, my brother and I were looking. This is like pre-crash. So my brother and I are looking for, we get the real estate bug just like everyone else. And we're looking for a duplex to buy like two apartments. And we would I would live on one side, he would live on the other. And by real estate bug, I mean, I lived in California at that time. I mean, maybe a little bit like you've seen the last six months in terms of people just doing whatever it would take to get into a house. Yeah. And I think, but even crazier than the last six months, because the loans, they just didn't care. No one was like, doing credit checking you, checking your income. It was like, I mean, I think it's good for your younger listeners to hear this. As crazy as everyone thinks things are right now, it's not even close to the way it was back then. Because now at least the banks actually care if you can repay the loan. <laughs> back then, it was like pandemonium. No one cared. So we're looking at like to try to find a duplex. But my brother ran across this guy who had bought a derelict 16-unit building and renovated it. And the guy like, was super entrepreneurial, but he was not well capitalized. And so right as he finished the project or was finishing the project, he kind of ran out of money. And so he was desperate to sell. So even though the market overall was really inflated, this particular deal was actually kind of reasonably priced. We had help from like this residential agent who was like a buddy of my brother's who didn't know anything about apartments. And our parents gave us almost all the money. And luckily, we found some bank that was willing to make the loan, mostly because we were putting down a large down payment. So they figured like, hey, you know, chances are these guys are not going to like default because they put down such a big down payment. Anyway, so we found ourselves in early 2008 we found ourselves like owning this empty 16 unit building. It's actually, we still own it. It's right around the corner over here. This empty building. It's like, we, and with a gigantic mortgage payment coming due. And so the bank had forced us to hire a management company. We hired them and like we started leasing the building. At what point were you like, this is what I'm going to do with my life? Like, where does that moment? Because ostensibly, you're at this moment, you're just trying to get a piece of this incredible pie that you see all around you. So we buy this building and we go through a bunch of like pain to get it leased up, but we do. It's working out okay. Like it's more than covering the mortgage. We're, it's cash flowing. We're in good shape. 
Then the economy falls off a cliff. This is now like 2008, nine. It had already, like the writing was already on the wall from Lehman Brothers, I think in fall of 2007, but it took a while to like work its way down to like tenants in Los Angeles. You know, the rents start going down, like all over the media, there's like, you know, apocalypse is happening. Like people are going out of business, bankruptcy, all this stuff. Okay. Foreclosures. Real estate goes on sale. And a lot of the people who were experienced real estate operators at that point had two things working against them. One, all the pros had been buying up real estate in 2004, five, six, seven, and got their asses handed to them in 2007, eight, nine. And so all of these pros are like licking their wounds. They're, they're dealing with their own problems with their banks and their investors and their tenants. I mean, so they're distracted. And then the other thing to say is that a lot of those pros remembered that things had got really bad in the early 90s. And this incredible buying opportunity emerged in like the early to mid 90s where people made absolute fortunes. And so the real pros were waiting for that to repeat itself. And because of government policy, it never did. You didn't go low enough, basically, to... The serious gangster real estate people who really know what they're doing and could have got capital, even though like it was very hard to raise capital then, were like, wait, let me like wait until... <laughs> let's wait till it gets really cheap. And it never got that cheap. And this is when that invisible force, whose power we often touch on the show, your network, one of the reasons that Moses had indeed returned to the U.S. from London, came into play. And in this case, it came in the form of an old friend who had made a killing running a hedge fund. The problem that he had was, if you're making tons of money in 2008-9, right, what do you do with it? Banks are going out of business. FDIC insurance goes up to 250000 or 500000 like the government will insure a checking account or whatever. But if you have $10 million, what do you do with it? Do you give it to Lehman Brothers? <laughs> like, do you give it to Goldman Sachs? I mean, Goldman Sachs had to like convert it to a bank holding company to get federal support so that they didn't go out of business. So anyway, real estate goes on sale, including in the neighborhoods that we're interested in. My friends got all this money. And we go to him, my brother, this is my brother and I were doing business together at the time. We go to my friend, we're like, listen, there's this deal we want to buy. We don't have any money for it, but we think it's a good deal. And we bought the first building and we screwed up in about a million ways, but fundamentally it worked. And so he saw that and he just backed us for another deal and another deal and another deal. And in the course of a few years from like early 2009 until early 2011, we bought our second through 12th deals, I think, all with his money. And so because we were iterating really fast, we just learned a ton. Like, okay, that didn't work. Like, let's fix it next time. Okay, that worked. Let's do that in the next. And it's a complicated business, but because we got so many reps so quickly, we went right up the learning curve very fast. And the other thing to say is we didn't have anyone telling us what to do. It's crucial. Like we didn't, we weren't working for anyone else. And he was not like on us day to day about the decisions we were making. There's a lot of mistakes that we made that we could have avoided. But we also avoided being unduly influenced by conventional ways of doing things. 
Like we had to figure it out ourselves. So we figured it out. And the way that we figured out to do it was just different than what other people had done. I'll give you an example. My friend's one stipulation was that we not use debt, which if you ask someone who does real estate, should you do real estate deals with no debt, they'll fall out of their chair. But he was thinking, look, if they don't have mortgages, how bad can it get? If there's no mortgage, no one can take the building away from you. It's a very profound insight. Like a lot of real mediocre real estate deals can be made to look better by using a lot of debt. So to make things good, we actually had to add value. Like they had to be good deals. Like they couldn't be mediocre deals where that we use debt to juice the returns for everyone. Those insights are like foundational to how I think about real estate even today, like a hundred deals later. You also mentioned that using leverage puts your deal to the mercy of the debt markets. Yes. And we try to avoid putting ourselves and our investors at the mercy of forces that we cannot control. That's right. There are a ton of loans that are called like balloon repayment loans where like there's a set date on which you have to repay the loan. In general, your choices are you either have to refinance the loan, like go get another loan that pays off the first loan and then you then you have your new loan, or you have to sell the property. So one of the things that we learned very early on in like 2009 was because we were always like, even though we weren't allowed to use debt, by 2010, 11, we sort of started to talk about it. So we started meeting with, with lenders and the lenders were just like, sorry, we're just not making loans. So that taught me this lesson, which is to say that it doesn't matter what like rationality shows you on your spreadsheet. Sometimes you're not going to be able to borrow. So banks are irrational. The spreadsheet projections, well, they can be. They can be irrational. It's not even necessarily irrational. It just could be like they might have an institutional prerogative where they're just like, we don't care that the numbers make sense to give you a loan. We're not making loans right now. During COVID this past year, like COVID happens and the debt market just goes like closed. No loans. Okay. So the problem is if you have a balloon repayment that says you need to pay off this loan at this date. And you find yourself in one of those crises where the debt market is just like, sorry, we're not loaning. Those are also the worst times to sell. And it's totally preventable. You just do not put yourself in situations where you are dependent on the debt market operating the way that it normally does, right? Like don't do balloon loans or only do balloon loans where you've got like a big multi-year long window before you have to refinance so that you can, you got enough of a shot that the debt market will heal itself over a year or two and you'll be able to get your loan. But fundamentally, you just don't want to be in a position where forces outside your control can either take your building away from you or force you to sell it. And it's especially important for you because you're modeling this approach that wealthy families have long used essentially on behalf of your LPs. You're not looking to flip this stuff. You want to hang on to it. And there's a couple of interesting ways you approach that. So you have this formula. I'm going to try to read it to you. So you take the forecasted annual rents of your buildings minus the forecasted annual expenses, and you divide it by the cost to buy plus the cost to rehab. That equals your unlevered yield. Yes. Describe to me what an unlevered yield is and how you structure the deal such that your LPs participate in it or your, your wealthy friend who runs a hedge fund versus y'all as the guys who are pulling it together. Those are sort of two different questions. There's the question, 
of what's unlevered yield on cost. And like that's a metric we use to evaluate deals and how profitable they are. And then there's like, how do we, how do those profits get divvied up basically among us and the investors? So on that first with unlevered yield, that's that core number that you're looking for to find quality essentially. Yeah. Because that gets at the heart of like, are you doing something that's mediocre or are you actually creating value? That's kind of what I was talking about before. Unlevered means or unlevered means no debt. Rents minus expenses in the numerator. And in the denominator, it's the cost to buy the building, cost to rehab it. Nowhere in there does anyone mention mortgage payments. So in other words, it, it treats the whole project like it's done in cash. Assume you buy the building and fix it up with cash. How much cash should you expect to get each year? How do you decide if that's reasonable or not? Well, you always know that you can go into the market today. You can go, there's a bunch of buildings for sale in Los Angeles. You can go pick one out that's in a reasonable location, that's in reasonable shape, and you can pay cash for it. And you can expect to receive somewhere between three and a half and four and a half percent on your money every year from buying that. Again, no mortgage, no nothing. You just like, you go buy a fixed up building already. You pay a million bucks for it. You will collect your rents all year. You'll pay your expenses all year. And what will be left over at the end is $35,000 or $40,000. So if you're going to go through a bunch of brain damage to renovate a building, city permits and construction and all this, you know, God knows what else, all this nonsense. Okay, squatters. And I don't know, I can tell you stories that'll make your toes curl. <laughs> the question is, what is the yield going to be? Because you can get the 35000 without just not doing any of that. You could get it from, from just buying a building. The answer is, you want to make sure that that yield materially exceeds what you could get by just going out in the market and buying a building. It kind of depends on the capital source. You know, in other words, who the investor is, who's going to partner with us in the deal and what they want and all that kind of stuff. But generally speaking, if you can buy a three and a half or a four just in the open market, for us to have a job, for our company to exist, we need to be able to create yields that are like five and a half or six. And that leads to the second part of how you're structuring the deal then with the LPs. In general, we use a very plain vanilla structure, uh, real estate private equity structure, and that is investors give us money. We owe the investors a set preferred return on that money every year. So like 6% or 7%, whatever the number is. And before we participate in any of the cash flow from the building or profits from the sale of the building or proceeds of the refinancing of the building, we first need to give the investors back all of the preferred return that we owed them, all that 6% and all the money they invested. So basically you give us like a million bucks, we need to give and we'd have it for two years and the pref, the preferred return is six. 6% is 60 grand on it on the first year, second year, 60 grand again. So at the end of year two, if we're going to give it back to you, we need to give you back 60 plus 60 is 120 plus the original million. So once we give you back the 60 plus 60 plus the original million, then typically the investors get 70% of the future profits and we get 30% of the future profits. One way of thinking about it is the investors are sort of renting us their money at like 6% or 7% a year, whatever it is. 
In exchange for doing that, they also get a perpetual 70% ownership share in the building. And we get a perpetual 30% ownership share in the building. And they get paid on dividends on that 70%. Yeah, exactly. In the beginning, there's usually refinances and cash flow from the rents, whatever. However we can, we're funneling money as quickly back to them as possible to try to get them back their preferred return and their principal Depending on how good a deal it was, that will happen sooner or later. Like in a great deal, the fastest we've ever done this, I think, is 18 months. Are you competing then with other PE firms in terms of those deal structures in particular? Is that how you compete or is it more like a trust relationship thing? That's a good question. There's certainly like a market for different terms. Some firms will do 80-20 and some firms will do 50-50 and sometimes the pref is zero and sometimes it's 10 and, and there are all kinds of fees. The structures can actually get pretty exotic. If your listeners are interested, there's a book called Investing in Real Estate Private Equity by a, a guy named Sean Cook. It's actually a pseudonym. Kind of walks through all the different ways that these deals get structured. We happen to use, as I said before, a very vanilla version. Yes, there is a market in terms of the terms, but I would say that within reason, if I were someone looking at investing in a deal or not, the things I would evaluate are like, what do I think of the sponsor? What do I think of the deal? What do I think of the terms? You're never going to know the deal as well as the sponsor. Right. Like The sponsor is going to know a million times more about that building than you are. So it's not even a question. You're at such an informational disadvantage. So Find sponsors who you trust, who are, you think are smart and will treat you fairly. And if you find sponsors who you think are tr- smart and will treat you fairly, I'm not saying you should ignore the deal or ignore the terms, but like those things are of much, much less importance than is this a smart person you're investing with and is this person trustworthy? Very cool. Moses, there's, you know, call it maybe 10,000 entrepreneurs who are busy working day to day. Most of them not nearly as far along as you, folks that are headed on your path, what's sort of maybe a standard piece of advice that's helped you over the years that might be valuable to them today while they're walking around uh, listening to us talk about real estate? I guess I would just say that it's incredibly rare in business that you start doing something and immediately it's awesome and it takes off and blah. Particularly in like traditional, more traditional like service type businesses, it takes a while to get the ball rolling, get the wheel turning. And it has to do with referrals and your name getting out there and a reputation developing and you getting better and people understanding that you're better. And those things, there are ways to accelerate them, but fundamentally it's a compounding process. It's like, it's a slow, steady thing. It's so easy to get discouraged one year in, two years in, three years in, you're looking at everyone else, your friends, your contemporaries are making more money than you and you feel like a failure. And I can't tell you, like some businesses you should give up. If you're seeing real progress, if you are like even at a small scale, if you're delighting customers, in this case our investors and our tenants, if you're generating good returns, if you're growing, just keep trying stuff and don't stop. Just keep crawling. (laughs) And eventually, all of those little improvements compound and your reputation compounds and you get referrals. So anyway, this is a long way of saying, if you are seeing improvement and growth, do not give up. Just 
keep pushing through and you will be amazed what you can what you can accomplish through focused effort over a sustained period of time. Big shout out to Moses Kagan, co-founder of Adaptive Realty. Check him out on Twitter over at MosesKagan.com. He's an awesome follow. And to echo Moses, we are all about not giving up. And to that end, we will be back next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.